You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, Lacrosse is at it again with a new line of lace-up hunting boots, the Navigator Series. And in that Navigator Series, there are two models. There's the Atlas for men and the Windrose for both men and women. To find out more information about this new Navigator Series, visit lacrossefootwear.com. My name is Clay Newcomb, and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting, the icon of North American wilderness, the bear. We'll talk about tactics, gear, conservation, but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet chasing bear. Hey, check out our buddies at W hunting supply they've got a shirt on sale this week it's called their hound hunting america shirt it's a hoodie looks awesome check out w hunting supply for all your hound needs from garments to leashes to collars to clothing check out our buddies also at northwoods bear products i'm holding in my hand right now a bottle of this gold rush man this stuff if i opened it up right now it would probably blow this office up. It's not bear baiting time, but this spring, be ready with a full line of commercial scent products from, from our buddies at Northwoods. Also, check out our buddies at the Western Bear Foundation. They are a nonprofit hunting conservation organization that's given a voice to bear hunters out west. Check them out. Hey, on this podcast... We're back up again with Tom Ainsworth in Manitoba, Canada. And we talked to Tom about his life, about some of his stories. And it may be even a lot like the podcast we recorded with him last year. We may have even told some of the same stories, but I wanted to hear him again from Tom. We also talk about the big buck that, that I killed up there just a few days ago. So you're going to enjoy this podcast with, with a true Canadian character and in my mind a legend Tom Ainsworth a lot of people may be listening to this podcast and they have dreamed of doing a Canadian whitetail hunt I want to say that this hunt with Tom and Grandview is a lot more financially doable than you probably think whatever number that you're thinking in your mind for what one of these hunts should cost this hunt is a lot less And let me tell you, I told Chris, hunting with Tom, finding Tom has been like finding a bird nest on the ground. This is a great hunt. I've been up there three years and taken three exceptional deer. So check out out Grandview Outfitters. You can go to their website, find their contact information. At least call Tom and talk to him. Today is November the 7th. And we're in Manitoba, Canada, north of Grandview. Yep. And it has been ice cold yes. for a couple of boys from Arkansas. <laughs> has it been cold? It's cold for us. Cold for you. Sure. Yeah. It's been uh, low temperatures this week so far have been like two degrees or three yeah. degrees. Yeah. As low as 17 are degrees, okay. Yeah, 17 for yeah. our Canadian listeners. Our U.S. Yep. listeners have no idea. Yep. what 17 degrees celsius is right but uh i think the high temperature we've had all week though has been like 20 degrees yeah yes that's really the, the the way to tell how cold it is but i've got tom ainsworth with me 
Tom, I've known Tom for several years now. This is my third year coming up here and whitetail hunting with you. Yeah. And then I've got my longtime buddy, Chris Roberts. Hello. Chris is uh, Chris and I have known each other since grade school. And uh, so he and I have been up here hunting. Um, Tom, tell me about the big buck on the wall over here. Tell me, t- tell me, you kind of gave me the extended version. Yep. But uh, hanging on Tom's wall is, is a deer. I'm not going to tell how big the deer was. But just like what frame of mind you're in. And I kind of want to paint a picture for people of how Canadian whitetail hunting was in the in yes. the 80s. Yes. I, I assume that was. Yeah. So tell me the story of that deer. Uh, there were some big deer around. We were finding some real big sheds. And uh, I knew a place where they were where nobody hunts. And it's about a mile and a half from where I live right now. And uh, so I went over there to see if I could get one. Uh, my gun in them days, I ran a 22-250. And uh, my wife bought it for me in about 1972. Mm. And anyways, uh, it was a good gun. You could, you know, you could break an egg with it or make bullets touch at 100 yards quite easy. But anyways, I went over there looking for a big deer. And there's about eight of them come out of, off of a fence line, out of a big bush, off of a fence line into a field of, of stubble in the fall time, eh? What, what were they coming into? Wheat stubble? Wheat stubble. Just so like that, your, yours today. Yeah, just like where I... Yeah. So that wheat stubble grow... Is it wheat that's growing oh, underneath yeah. wheat, that? Wheat for flour. And actually that, where you shot yours today, was half a mile from where I shot that one. No way. Yes. Hmm. Just across the road from where you shot it. Oh, I'll be darned. So anyways, uh, I went out there and there's a bunch of... There's some does and calves. And I mean, we didn't have numbers like you're seeing nowadays. We maybe would have... Uh, four or five animals, and the numbers were down, I guess. But anyways, uh, I was looking for a big deer. Uh, this buck come across. I was sitting in the fence line, just in some little rose bushes, we'd call it, downwind. 80 yards down, this buck come across a little field with his head down. And uh, he didn't look that big. and Because uh, his head was down, it was starting to snow, and anybody knows that <coughs> when a deer runs, the horns do not go all up in the air, and he actually looks bigger than he is, I would say. But when their head's down and it's snowing, it was good, but I thought it was small. So I watched it for 20 minutes, and it was 80 yards away. Just feeding? Yep. What time of year was it? Uh, there was snow on the ground, so it would be a little later than this. You know what I mean? Let's just so say, he wasn't rutting? He wasn't, or oh, he no. wasn't chasing a doe no, no, or something? No, no, he was just... He was traveling with them animals, eh? And so um, I looked at it for 20 minutes and thought, well, you know, it's the best one out here tonight, so I shot it. And then when I went over there, I realized that the horns were two feet off the ground. <laughs> and so that, that made quite a difference. And uh, it was a good deer. It was 208 inches. And the thing was, our dog, where you guys are staying, our dog there, he brought shed horns into the yard that were pretty well an exact match for that. Mm. He brought one into the yard, and I walked out to the field beside the house there, and the other one was there. Mm. But we had some real big bucks in our day in this country. They're, they're good quality deer, eh? Yeah. Heavy beam, very heavy, yeah. I would say. Double brows and triple brows. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, described that deer just like, how would you describe that deer? Massive. I mean, it's it, it kind of takes your breath away when you see it. Um, uh, I mean, I would have... Super mass. Yeah, like, super mass. I mean, it, we just... I don't want to give... I don't know what you want to give away. I mean, it's kind of hard to... Of what happened today. So, it, it, I mean, because that... I've got that buck on my mind, so it's kind of hard yeah. to think. I, I should have went and looked at it before, but it's got... I mean, it's a very beautiful deer. Yeah. I mean, it's a very... Double drop. So yeah, it's, double drop How wide tines. is it, Tom? I really, I can't think of it now, but it's probably 24, 25 in the inside, maybe. Yeah. It's, it's, it's. And it's, it's got double, double drop tines. It's yep. mainframe 10. Yep. With as big a mass as oh, you'll see. Real big. And yep. several kickers on That's the right. tines. That's right. So we went and looked at it with yep. you. It's a very majestic type. I mean, yep. it's, it's, it's very, yeah. It's a beast. Yeah. So but, the cool part of that story is you didn't think it was very big. No. <laughs> uh, 
I think it probably the, was on a 270-pound frame. or Yeah, or 300. I think the cool part is is he watched it for 20 minutes. Yeah. And How then many, I shot it with a 22-250, which is, which a, is a varmint gun. Yeah. How but many? I mean, it would drive a tack. Yeah. So there was nothing to it. And and them days, that's all I had. Yeah. It wasn't, you had Did choice. the buck dro- just drop? No, he made a little tight circle there for, say, 25 yards, and that was it. You lung shoot him. Well, see, I think that story tells the story of Canadian whitetail hunting pretty good. Mm-hmm. Because in the 80s, in the early 80s, Chris, nobody knew about Canadian whitetail hunting except the Canadians and the and the and the hype of whitetail hunting and the frenzy that was going on in the states yes. had really yet to spread up here. Yes. And so like there wasn't that much value put on that animal. I mean you were just like, hey, this is a good buck. Sure. Gonna have a lot of meat for my family. Yep. And you were just getting started whitetail outfitting. Yep. Yep. And so I mean you knew that this was an incredible animal, oh, but yeah. but it you know but my first hunters that come in here 45 years ago, uh, they'd just come in here and shoot a, a large animal. I mean, it wasn't, you know, they're coming from Texas at that time, and they, you know, the, the deer were big up here, eh? And massive deer. Like, we have mass. And, that, and, we, and right now, the mass is coming back because it's been so many years since, you know, the hard winters and that. And it's just like you're seeing today. We're seeing a lot of good quality deer here now. Yeah. And next year's going to be better yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. It's just going to be bigger deer and better. Yeah. And it's, you know, we've seen a lot of good quality bucks around. Yeah. Well, so kind of the story of Manitoba, it was that in the 80s and 90s up through the mid early 2000s, I mean, the whitetail hunting would have been just incredible. Yeah. And then you had a tough stretch where the population yeah. went down. You bet. But now it's coming back. Oh, yes. It took time. Yeah. They've got to grow up. And you told me something last year that since the kind of the, the hype and whitetail craze from America came here, now you have more resident Canadian hunters. Is that... Is that correct? You don't have a lot. I'm not saying you have the pressure that we have, but there's more guys that are interested in it. People know what they've got when they see a huge well, buck yeah. in well, their Well, the place. thing is now, everybody is getting to where they know what a 170 buck is. You know, they just look at it. You know it's got to be so wide. You know you've got to have 10-inch tanks. You know it's got to be a 5x5. Five five. Yeah. And it just seems to be everybody knows that. It's I hate to say it. It's not like bear hunting. <laughs> yeah. You know. Right. It's It's... People look at it, and they can figure it out. Yeah. And so it makes a big difference, eh? Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're lucky the big buck was shot in Saskatchewan, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Because if it would have came here, it might have ruined our industry. Yeah. And we're just, you Chris, know. do you know what he means by that? No. Saskatchewan. It's the world record in 94 came from Saskatchewan. Yeah. And which is 60 miles from here. It's not even 60 miles from here. Oh, wow. And I'm glad it was there. Yeah. <laughs> because... Everybody went there, and it's just like a lot of places they're paying. You know, you're paying, I don't know nowadays, but it don't matter, five to $7,000 is kind of was the going rate a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm glad it went there, personally, because if it would have come in here, you'd have, you know, a red hat in every tree. Well, and it's like this and week, we didn't hear another gunshot. Yeah. Yeah. It's like here, yeah. our, our hunters so far haven't seen another hunter, haven't heard a... a a gunshot, and yet we're seeing quite a few bucks and, and good numbers of deer and that. And uh, that's where I would go hunting, and that's where I, you know, you've got to do th- treat people and stuff the way you'd like to be treated. And I think that's just what a person wants when you go somewhere is to, yeah. you know, you're in that, lo- you know, the last wilderness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Describe to me, I think a lot of people that have not hunted Canada— Kind of, kind of like Texas has its own whitetail culture. You know, if you go to Texas, you're going to be hunting these mesquite flats over a deer feeder mm-hmm. or senderos that have been spread with corn. Sure. And you're going to see a bunch of small-bodied deer with huge racks. Like, there, there's a hunting culture in Texas. Yes. There's the same thing in Canada, except very vastly different. Completely different. Let's describe for people what Canadian whitetail hunting is. Because I think... There's a misconception that I had, which was that Canadian whitetail hunting is negative 10 degrees 
all the time. Now it's been cold here. <laughs> snow on the ground all the time, which we've not hunt, we've hunted with just a skiff of snow on the ground. Mm-hmm. All, all day sits. I mean, kind of it's kind of a grueling picture mm-hmm. sometimes. But that's not necessarily what I've seen. You could make it that if you wanted sure. to. And if you came in late November, yeah, you're going to be hunting in snow and cold. Yes. Yeah. But uh, describe like just a typical hunt, how you would just yeah. t- do normal hunters. Well, a, a typical hunt for me is, first of all, we try to accommodate our clients. So by doing that, uh, we have huts, heated huts. Uh, I'm a tall person myself, so we have them also, the, you know, a six-foot man or I'm over that, can walk through the door standing up in our huts, drop off the ground. They can be heated in uh, muzzleloader season for now. I mean, you could have it raining and stuff like that, guys, really, on lots of years. Well, you're, at least you can put your day in hunting. You know what I mean? You don't yeah. have to get wet. You can, you're being comfortable, and you can hunt. And the more hours you can put into the stand for an outfitter, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the more success rate you're going to have. Yeah. And it was just like today. We kind of had the idea we're coming in at 10 o'clock this morning. But you had the idea, Clay, I'm going to stay out till noon. And by staying out till noon, we hit that old, ten, you know, Timex time from 10 to 2. And just because of the time of year when rut's on and starting and all that, hey, you've seen a, a lot of bucks. You shot a beautiful buck at 11 o'clock in the morning. And most people are either having lunch or having a nap yeah. or, or, or stuff like that, eh? But it's about choice. You know, how much you want to put in is how yeah. much you get back, eh? Yeah. But... You know, up here, the weather can be real cold, you know, or quite cold. And uh, we've had it in, when I started, not, we had a guy that come from Texas up here, and in deer season, he was sitting back here in the park with a t- white T-shirt on. Wow. And a bull elk walked up behind him and bugled, you know. <laughs> and it just shows you uh, it's weather, and we can't predict it. And yeah. You just... You know, I like the cold. Sure. Y- coming from Arkansas, to me... If if I came up here and we were comfortable, Chris, yeah, it it wouldn't have been a hunt. I mean, mm-hmm. to me, that every hunt has some yeah. element of challenge and testing. Yeah, and here it's the cold. Yeah, uh, you know. So this is the fourth day of a yep. six day hunt, and yep. I I did I killed a deer this morning, and we'll go into detail. I'll, I'll tell the story. Yeah, and uh, there's no heater involved with you. No heater. <laughs> so for three days I bow hunted. Yep, and I was using my my tethered tree saddle. Yep. Hanging out of a little poplar about eight inches in diameter, yep. just taking it in the face with uh, temperatures. I don't know how cold it was. I, I afternoon hunted, but one day I got in there about eleven thirty and set till yep. six o'clock. Yeah, and the wind was blowing at you, and it was cold. Yeah, There's I mean no, it was it was probably yeah. fifteen degrees yeah. with a cold ten yeah. mile per hour yeah. wind. You paid, was you paid your dues. I was cold in a box blind. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I woke up this morning. And I looked in the mirror, and I looked like I'd aged 10 years. <laughs> it, it wears you down. I, I will say, if you do come up here, make sure you have the gear if it's... Yeah. Yeah. It's easy we to bring with gear. you. Bring it with you. Yeah. It's e- Like anybody phones me, I'll say, hey, bring it with you. If you don't need it, don't put it on, but bring it close with you. It's better to have. And and I'll say this about being up here with, with you know, with Tom, it's... You know, it, it's almost like you're being treated as family, and that and well, that's been amazing. That's how that's how I think the outfitting business should be. You've got to become family with your clients and know, like me, I never went to a show. So really what I do is hunt families, it's called. And that is, I have to, ha- you've got to be satisfied. And when you're satisfied, you bring your brother or your father or your friend. And another advantage to that is when you've got good people, don't look for people because good people breed good people. So you don't have to worry about it. If you've got a good person, there's a very good chance his friends and that are just as good as him. So it's a way, you know. Yeah. But I never did went to a show, so we have to have satisfied clients. And you, you try to just treat people the way you'd like to be treated in life. It's just simple, eh? Yeah. And it, it's worked for us. For, for yeah. 45 years. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, and it's just be accommodating. It's yeah. you can hunt all day or you, you know, you can, we'll yeah. come pick you up and we'll sure. go here. And You're not a number. And, right. and that's kind of the way that we've done it. And, and 
this being my third year, I kind of started to know the farm and know the different stands. Exactly. And it's, it's a blast because, it, you know, we're kind of partnering yeah. together. You know, yeah. you're asking me what I think. Yes. And I love that. I mean, that's what I want. Yeah. I, I don't. Yeah. But we, to give a little, like, usually we're hunting in the mornings three or four hours. Yeah. Come in and have lunch. Yes. And then get back in the stands as, I mean, if you're taking it serious, you want to get back in the stand as quick as possible. Sure you do. But there's no pressure to do that. I mean, you know, if we had wanted to just hunt the last couple of hours of daylight, we yeah. could have. Yep. And the we're seeing a lot of deer. That, yep. That's the other misconception I think people have about Canada is that you don't see the deer numbers. At least that's what yeah. I thought. We, we're seeing a ton of deer. But I think different with me compared to a lot of outfitters is I own my own private land. Yeah. So I've got my own 1,600 acres along the Duck Mountain Park. I've got access to other people's land along here. Yeah. <coughs> and so I give you a different kind of a hunt. If you don't have land in that, well, you have to hunt bush hunt in the mountain and that. When you bush hunt in the mountain, uh, it's good hunting, but it's a different style again. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's totally forested. Yep. And you get up there and you might sit all day and you might see one or two or three deer, uh, stuff like that. Eh? Yeah. But behind my place, there's about 60 miles of provincial park. There's no road. The first road is 25 miles up. There's one road wow. that goes through it. So it's location. We're going to we're gonna have to go back there. You know, I've never been back in there. To the ducks? No. Well, One day we're going to have to go for a drive. Well, we can go for a drive anytime you want up here. Yeah. Because my last guy's in, they went right through the edge and come out in Swan River and the other side and drove around. and Oh, really? Just to see it. And like yeah. in our mountain here, uh, 25 miles from here, for example, it's a little over 20, 28 miles or whatever, but 25 miles up, we've got great lakes to fish in, guys. We've got great mm. trout, you yeah. know, and stuff like that. Master yeah. anglers are, you know, pretty easy to get. Yeah. So it's there's good fishing, you know, if people want to... If they're tagged out and want to go fishing or something like that, you can and stuff like that yeah. too, eh? Well, we're down here in what you guys call the settlement. Yes. You call the park. Now, what you're calling park, we would call national forest. Yeah, or crown lands. Just, yeah, crown land, yeah. national forest. Yes. It's just public land. Yes. And uh, and then the settlement down here is relatively flat, kind of rolling, yeah. Yeah. but ag country. I mean, like we're looking – today where I was sitting – I could see half a mile across a wheat field, yeah. probably. And you could actually see 20 miles to the next Riding Mountain National Park. You're right, That's to how the far south. It is. Yeah, it's 20 miles across. Yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, yeah. And, and so it's, to me, that's really neat because coming from Arkansas, eastern deciduous forest, we can't see very far in most places okay. we hunt. We have, you know, cattle pasture in some places, but to me it's really fun to be on these crop fields yep. and uh, – to just have these big grain-fed deer, yep. maybe not grain-fed, but yep. they're eating some beans, but a lot of a lot of wheat, yep. a lot of uh, We're alfalfa, just on the edge. Alfalfa. It's just like where we are. When you drop off my land here on the south side, you hit grain country. Yeah. It's just that simple. So I'm right on this edge between the bush and agriculture. Yeah. And uh, the worst of it is nowadays, well, everybody's taking the fence lines out and getting rid of the bush and stuff like that. And it's just like when I come up in here, there's only 27 acres broke on this back corridor land, 160 acres, there's 27 acres broke. Well, we've been here for 45 years. We've owned the land for my grandpa and grandma for a hundred. And I never broke another acre on here because when I leave this area country, uh, it's going to be the way I came. And I think, if anything, it'll be improved. You know what I mean? But I don't believe in knocking trees down. If somebody wants to buy it and do it, that will be their choice with time. Yeah. But, but we're going to, you know, leave it to our kids, and they will have that opportunity, and they can do what they want. Yeah. You know, it's, they're lucky yeah. to have that. Yeah. Yeah. So your your grandparents had this place 100 sure. years ago. Yeah. Turn of the century. You bet. Now, where were they from? England. They they actually migrated yep. from England. Yeah. They came over to Canada in 1911. Okay. Yeah, and that, and they they come over here, and you know, uh, 
if you really think about it, the closer you are up here to the park, the poorer the people are and the poorer the land is and the poorer everything is. <laughs> you know, that's the truth. Yeah. It's just how it is. And so, you know, when you're poor people, you get pushed up to the poorer land and along the park. And yeah. I'm glad they did. Yes. <laughs> you know, Tom, I can I can envision you being a tall, lanky guy walking down the street in London. You know, I kind of see you as an Englishman now that yep. I, now that you say that. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, well, that's that's incredible. Before we get to my buck story, which we'll we'll talk about that. I got a couple of questions for you. Yeah. What's your favorite deer rifle for hunting up here? So we're talking about. Big-bodied whitetails, you know, deer between top end 300, mature buck 230-ish, big animals. What? Just your favorite, not what you'd tell somebody else, just what does Tom Ainsworth carry if he's whitetail deer hunting up here? I carry actually a 270. It's, I've got quite a few guns. You know, I've got 300 Weatherbees and all that, and, but uh, I have a 270. I think you should carry any gun you can shoot well with. You've got to shoot well with it. Uh, a two seventy could be light, but I mean, also I can take and make two shells touch at a hundred yards, two bullets, and uh, so that's your gun of choice. That's what I use. Why is that? It's just what I started out with, really. You know, was a, okay. I got into two seventy, but probably if I were to look at it nowadays, I might, I might step it up to a. Probably something like a 300 mag, okay? okay? Because if you want to, it's how good of a shot you are, but I think you should be able to shoot good to 300 yards, let me tell you, in this country, because you guys are shooting 300 yards with a muzzle loader, and you're getting nice bucks. Yeah. And so, you know, and the only problem, a 270 is great, and they're flat shooting and great, but you're shooting, the Jack O'Connor was 130 grains of lead, and I shoot 140 because it'll tighten my group up with an interbond bullet, mm. eh? And that's why I do it. But, you know, I So would you shoot 140 grain interbond out of your 270. You bet. And tell me what that bullet is designed to do. It's designed not to blow up. It's, it's not like a Barnes that is a very hard shell that goes right through. It's not a bullet that as soon as it touches something, it blows up. Uh, expanding at the right time is very important. And the interbond will, it goes in, it expands, and it puts a good exit on the outside and leaves a blood trail and yeah. stuff like that. But if you get something that hits something hard and blows up, you need enough penetration. So if you happen to hit a shoulder blade or something, you know what I mean? Yeah. But that's why I would go to, like nowadays, I would go to a bit heavier caliber. Because yeah. I'm using it on deer, but I use it on moose and elk and stuff like that too, eh? Yeah. 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 Okay. What, what? Sorry, what what would you use for elk? Well, I use I use my two seventy, but right right now I use. It depends on location where you're hunting. If it's nice and close shots, that's one thing. But if I figure it's uh, going to get out like to a three or four hundred yard shot, and I want knockdown, well, I take my three hundred Weatherby. Eh? But otherwise, uh, a seven mag would be of all the guns. If I were to put them up, a thirty out six is probably a great all round gun because it's very mm -hmm. versatile on the amount of mm -hmm. lead you can get. It's a poor man's magnum. That's my opinion. Yeah. But it's good. It's very. That's what I bought my son. Okay, 30 out 6. You bet. Yeah. I bought him a 30 out 6 because I had the 270, and I thought we needed a step up. Yeah. So I got him a 30 out 6. But anything between a 30 out 6 to a 300. Yeah. It, it'd, be a, it'd be a great gun. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm switching. I'm switching topics a little bit to wild game cooking. <laughs> Tom is a he is an expert when it comes to butchering hey, we need and to bring using Deb wild in game. Here. Well, <laughs> Deb's the cook. Yep. Tom's getting the credit here, but no, De Deb's getting the credit. But as far as butchering and Tom, what is your go-to? If I was asked this question, and I, I so I'm going to ask you the same question. If you had one way to cook whitetail deer, how would you cook it? If you just had one. Well, my, f that's not, that's a very hard question. <laughs> it's not fair, he says. Yeah, because there's two different things. If you okay, want. Okay, I'll give you two. Okay, if I wanted my favorite dish, we would take backstrap, and we call it Kentucky Fried Backstrap. 
and a guy by the name of Mickey Melton from Houston, Texas, come up here about 45 years ago. And uh, the way we do it is we cut our back strap a little over a quarter of an inch thick, a thick quarter inch. We take and take the coarse side of a meat hammer and patty it out on both sides. We sprinkle that with lorry seasoned salt, black pepper, and a bit of garlic, and lots of just What right. kind of garlic? Our own garlic. Oh, just minced garlic? Well, we powder our own garlic. Oh, we dehydrate it, it, dry it, and okay. make our own garlic powder. So you put that on both sides. And if you're going to deep fry this, you take some oil, and you can use anything from canola oil to peanut oil or whatever, and you could put a half inch in a pan or an inch, whatever turns your crank, eh? So hot frying oil. Yeah. yeah. And then if you're going to deep fry something, you have to batter it. So you put flour in a dish, and then what you're going to do is take, uh, for every person, you might say you put one egg. So if you've got four people, you put four egg in there, and... Uh, Cream or milk or eggnog or something like that. The thicker you want it, the thicker the product you use. Eggnog. I'm going to have to try that. <laughs> oh, it's good. And uh, you, ba- you take your eggs and you whip them with your, we'll say, cream. And then you double, uh, you're going to deep fry it. So you double batter it. So we take the, the meat and we go into the flour first on both sides. Back into your, we'll say, cream or egg and milk. Back into the flour. Back into the flour. And then you put it in. And you just let it come to a golden brown, which don't take very long. Yeah. And it's so tender. Uh, it's good. It's good. And then just another way of doing meat is. This is your second favorite. Yeah. If I were to do something else, especially, it depends on how tough your meat is, okay? But another way of just doing it is, is to can it like my grandma did. Mm. And all you did was take court sealers out. You take steak or is good. Is that like a like a court mason jar? You bet. Okay, court sealers. Yeah, that's what you're calling that. And then uh, you just take your. We use steak or some good quality meat, of course. No fat on it, no sinew on it. You cut it into uh, one by two or whatever squares. You take and put it in. You take some salt. You take pepper and a little bit of garlic, and I don't mean much. Maybe half a teaspoon of each. You put it in a, a dish. And what you do is you start, take your meat at the bottom and touch it and put it in the bottom. And as you come up, you touch it and touch it. Instead of pouring it all on top, where the top few pieces are so salty and that you can't eat okay, them. Okay, so you're, you're adding seasoning as yeah. you're putting little yeah. chunks of meat yeah. in there. And you so add is that no, what you mean by touch it? Yeah. Yeah, you know. so put the salt, pepper, and garlic in, in a, let's say in a, on each little piece as you put yeah. it in the jar. Okay. Yeah. Is that what yeah. you mean? Yeah. So how many Not pieces piece. in a jar? Okay. Just once in a while. Pardon? How many pieces in a jar? Till it's full. And then what you do is take a plastic cup or something and keep pushing it down, pushing it down. You add no water, nothing to this. And uh, you can put pect- two ways of putting jelly into a product. One is pectin. You add a little pectin. If you want to do it the old style, you'll take a chicken's foot that's cleaned, you know, really, mm. and you put it in there, and it's natural pectin. Really? And chicken's it'll completely foot. gel a quart sealer of meat. And then all you do is I use a um, turkey fryer cooker, put water in it, um, cook it for three and a half to four hours, let it cool off. Then you have jellied meat. It's jellied chicken, like a jellied ham or something you buy, but it's jellied chicken. You can eat it cold. And it's, you know, when it's just cool. real tender. Oh, it's, uh, sure, it's canned. And like then, a canned ham. So what do you, what, what do you, how, do, how would you primarily use that? It, w- it would kind of be jellied, so it would be like, yeah. kind of have the whitish stuff around. Well, it, it's kind of yellow, but it, it's jellied. Yeah. And then you can take it out and just eat it when it's cool, and it's great. Or yeah. if you wanted something quick, you could take that out, <coughs> put it in a frying pan and heat it up. Add a little bit of something to it and... Uh, so you can just fry it or use it in stew. Use it in stews. Use it in lots of things. Yeah. It's, it's pre-cooked. I'm going to have to try that. But I do... With the I, chicken foot. You're going to use the chicken foot? But that's... A, <laughs> see, that's tradition. Before you had pectin and stuff, you have to work with what you got. Yeah. And that's one thing that it'll do. Because if anybody's ever canned chicken, you'll find out you don't need to put pectin or nothing in it because... It's natural in the bones. Huh. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) 
That's good. <laughs> and you really like to you like to grind your meat too. Yes. You like you you got you get a lot of ground ground meat. Yes. It's and you butcher your own elk. You, you kill elk on this property. Yes. Butcher your own elk. Butcher yep. your own deer. Yep. Yeah. Do you kill moose on this property? Not now, but we used to. They mm-hmm. used to bull moose, and that was standing in my gateway. But now the population's down. But otherwise, we'd see moose right out of our yard all the time. You know, we'd yeah. see moose. And elk, and here you see elk. We still see our elk. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Another change of topic. I'm trying to, I'm trying to like, categorize all these things I've learned from hanging around with Tom. Okay. Let's talk about your trick for cleaning uh, deer skull. <laughs> yeah, so, so last year, uh, well, twice... I have taken a in, in clo- a complete skull out of Manitoba. And because it's CWD area, you, you can't take brain matter with you. It's got to be a clean skull. That's right. And so what do we do? We, we Because we kill these deer, and we got to leave pretty quick. So you yeah. don't have a lot of time. Yeah. And, but we want to take the whole skull. Yeah. And there's, I should say one thing before we give you the answer here. In some areas... You can't, you can't take your, you can't take your skull or you got to clean, you know, but on the west side of 366 here, our road. Yeah. We don't have to take no samples off. Okay. Yeah. There's no, yeah. There's no CWD That's here. That's right. So, That's correct. but what I did, I learned from a, one of my clients was all you do is there's a hole on the back of the skull and we run our air compressors up to about 120 pounds pressure. And uh, you can take a screwdriver in there, work it a little bit, or you probably don't have to. You just insert a little copper hose in there and pull the trigger once, <coughs> and the head's clean. <laughs> you uh, didn't see it, did you, Chris? No. Okay, so what you, what you do just, is you, you, you get a bucket, what we did. We get a bucket, and you kind of tilt the antlers back so that the hole, the, the hole on the back of the skull where the spinal column connects to the skull Tilt, tilt that down into the bucket. Because okay? it's, it's going to come out. And then Tom's got his air compressor going, and he's got a little custom fitting that has a little copper, probably eighth when inch, quarter inch. I was the brains out of mine, I was thinking, where's the air compressor? Well, yours was <laughs> well, easy. Well, we cut, we cut yours to yeah. make like a flat European mount. But so he's got this little quarter inch copper tube that he just bent up to make a little curl at the yep. end. Well, you hold those horns boy, you better make sure the hole's pointing down. <laughs> and you, you hook what? that, you put the little copper hook up into the hole probably an inch and a half, two inches. Yeah, right, or right to the back. It don't okay, matter. you maybe even go all the way to the back yeah. if your hook's yeah. long enough. Yeah. And just <coughs> like that, one. Yeah. And that inside of that brain cavity, yeah. you could eat Chinese food off of it. As quick as you can snap your finger, it's over. Where does it go? Down into the bucket. Oh. It, I mean, it. the only way it goes is out of that hole because that's the only place <laughs> and it's if got. And you're, if you're standing behind it, you'll catch yeah, it. Yeah, so if you if you were, you know, wherever you pointed that hole, that brain is going yeah. that way. You've got brain matter on you. Yeah, so yeah. anyway, point it down to the bucket, done deal. It's, it's the simplest way, and it works on bear skulls too, you see. Yeah. We used it on bear skulls and stuff because it's becomes it's pretty hard to get that out there clean, and so it's so easy to just do this and you just like that. I learned that quite a few years ago, and I've told a few people, but not too many. <laughs> well, it works great, <laughs> but it does work. It really does work great. Um, okay, <laughs> I have to show you, man. I keep I'm, I'm I'm bouncing around, Tom. What? Okay, before we get into my the story of my deer tips for what do you tell people about judging whitetails i'm i'm, I'm bouncing here uh, what 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 do you tell somebody that comes up here for judging whitetails because i have uh i've been up here three years and brought three different groups of people with me mm-hmm. and in every year there's been kind of a judging mishap if you could call it that or just a surprise not well, a mishap but a surprise yeah. well it depends on where you come from too eh yeah, yeah. And the reason being is, like myself, I went to Mexico and hunted. And all the deer looked so big. Uh, but what I didn't realize, uh, a mature buck down there was about 90 pounds. Mm. So when you throw a 147-inch head, which I got, Whew, you put big. that on a 90-pounder, I was shocked. But then when I went over and just picked him up and set him on the back of the bike, 
I realized how he was. So that's why my first clients came from Texas. And you got to realize that mature bucks up here will weigh from, well, I'm being honest with you, from 250 pounds to 270 is a great buck, but you do get 300. So what happens is it's so hard to judge a head on a 270-pound buck, to, you know, compared to something that if you, you come from an area where there are 100-pound bucks or even 150. Yeah. It throws you off that ratio. Yes. But, you know, for judging deer, as far as I'm concerned, it's got to be, it don't have to be past his ears to be a bookhead or a good one around here because we have mass. You, you know, it's nice to get a, I guess you might say, it's, you want something with a 20-inch beam on it. 24 is better, of course. And you've got to look for 10-inch tangs, uh, look for long brow tangs and stuff like that. Eh? But if you get into mass up here, it just depends. I'm a person that likes mass. I'm not really interested in the numbers too much. Yeah. Uh, it can be a, a 3 by 3 or a 4 by 4 or a 5 by 5 or a 6 by 6 But if it's got mass, that's what I like. Yeah. And you get hunters. And, and that, mass means maturity, really. Yes. You've got to have mature. Yeah. You've got to, and you get a real, you know, you get a, you don't get a lot, lots of times you don't get a chance to look at your deer too long. A lot of times where I am here, we do have that advantage where you can look at a deer quite a bit to kind of judge their size. It's not like they're just running and they're out of sight and you've got to make a split decision. Yeah. You know, and our deer here, they're not quite wild. You know, they're not as wild as a lot of places where they hear right. a door stop or this. And it's because we don't have hunting pressure in my area. Yeah. Like we've hunted here muzzleloader a while ago. And if you come up here in archery season, well, you probably will see pretty basically nobody. But in muzzleloader season here, we usually don't see another hunter. We don't see another red hat. Yeah. We It's, it's very quiet. And yeah. that gives you uh, a big opportunity uh, to get something good because... You've got no, and you can leave here. We have lots of hunters that leave here in the last week of rifle season or second last week, and they'll leave a buck here that's a, it could be a 150 buck or 160, and they will leave it here because they know when they come back next year, it's still here. Yeah. So once you get to be a mature hunter, it's not all killing. It's, if you want something, you've got to wait till it gets come and you, you know, you're managing it or trying to manage it. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. So that's why it's uh, like where we are. It's a great area to hunt. I yeah. think it is. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think the, the thing that I would tell people and Chris, we're going to talk about your whole story in a, a different podcast when we're driving home. Okay. So I don't want to get into your deal, but the real issue is for a hunter to be able to determine the body size of a mature buck mm -hmm. up here. Mm -hmm. Because like this morning, maybe this will be a good segue into my story. This morning I saw a 10-point buck that for his body size, his antlers looked good. Like if you would have, and it was a two-year, I believe it was a two-year-old buck. If, a, if somebody would have mistaken that two-year-old 10-point for a four or five or six-year-old 10-point body size, just the way his body looked, they would have shot him and thought they were shooting a 150-inch deer. Sure. And when I first saw the deer, I thought, oh, boy. And then quickly I was like, that's a two-year-old deer. He was he was shorter, but he was still thick. He still had a big neck. His horns went out to his ears. They looked like they had a little bit of mass. But when he turned his head, his main beams didn't come out to the end of his nose. His main beams went out to about halfway between his eye and his nose. And then when he turned and looked, his horns were inside of his ears. And then his tines, I could tell, were about five inches long. And, you know, I got the idea that this is a – he was 14 inches wide, had five-inch tines, and probably had three-and-a-half to four inches of mass. You know, mm -hmm. probably not even a 120-inch deer. That's right. But I, I think a guy could shoot that deer thinking that he was shooting a big one mm -hmm. up here mm -hmm. because uh, it, I, I think we kind of uh, – get psyched out a little bit um, with these deer because their bodies are so big, especially coming from a place where a good buck is 150, 160 pounds. Yeah. 
where these bucks are a hundred pounds more exactly than what we're yep. used to shooting. Yep. A big rack doesn't always look so impressive on such a big deer. For instance, this morning, and maybe this is where I can start telling my story. I went to a stand this morning that, well, first of all, we've been hunting a place we call the dugout, which is a, basically a food plot, four-acre food plot. Yep, yep. In, in, uh, Fall rye. Fall rye. And uh, two days ago, I was hunting in there with a tree saddle and my bow. And I, the last two years, and I don't know what I'm going to do if I come back, but last two <laughs> years I've bow hunted for a couple of days and then switched to the muzzleloader when I realized what I was up against. Um, and I was bow hunting, and I had a very nice 10-point come in right at dark on the second day. I believe it was 140 to 145-inch 10-point. Younger deer, but just a mm-hmm. dandy. And he came into 50 yards, and I actually drew on him. Couldn't get him to stop. It was getting dark. Didn't shoot. Hunted in there the next day, the third day, for six hours. That was when I got so cold. This morning, I came back, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm going to shoot the muzzleloader. And uh, kind of what I've made this hunt for me to be is, you know, every hunt I do, I, I find a way to challenge and limit myself. You know, and some some hunts I'm using a traditional bow just because it's, you know, that's where I want to find the challenge. Sometimes I'm using a compound bow. Like up here, it's a pretty big deal to kill a deer with a compound bow. That's where I wanted the challenge. Well, midway through the hunt, I decided I wanted the challenge to be just taking a nice deer with whatever method, and it's muzzleloader season. Mm-hmm. So we went to this stand over here that is at the – could you describe where that stand is, just kind of the terrain features? Uh it's a it's basically a fence line which is a mile long or a cut line sendero and uh we have i own 480 acres on it's three quarters of land on it and uh it's just set up uh where you can look down this for you know it's kind of rolling land in there you say but you can look down the fence line as far as you can shoot 400 yards oh yeah i, I range yeah. i think it was 400 yards you could see down yeah. With bush on both sides and about a forty-yard, it looks like a pipeline or something. Yeah, it's probably yeah, like you said, about that wide. But anyways, and then you're on a bush line there, and it's just set up like a T system. It's a funnel system. Everything comes together at that corner. Yeah. So we've got to stand there, and it worked before. But that's where you got your big one with a bow. Yeah. And it just it just works. Yeah. And the reason you hunt that sometimes is wind direction. If you've got a strong west wind, the deer aren't going to stand out in that wind and take that pressure. So they go behind the bush, which is that side. Okay, the east side. Yep. Okay. So they go behind the bush. They're out of the wind, just yeah. like yourself. Yeah. You know, you get out of the wind. Well, that's what they try to do is get out of the wind and have something to eat, eh? Yeah. So that's why they'll come out there. But they come out there all the time anyways, of course, eh? Right. But, I mean, uh, you're getting into rut. So the you know if you got the girls the boys will come it's kind of yeah. that way yeah so it's a it's a it's a corner you bet oh in a huge wheat field you so bet. in this stand I'm sitting in I can see what feels like a half a mile you I don't can know. it's a half a mile a half a mile I'm looking at a huge wheat field and it's at the corner of two two blocks of just heavy timber yeah and then this sendero that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So so I can look to my right, and I can see 400 yards down a sendero through the you bush. Bet. You bet. Bush is, you know, we call it, we'd call it woods. Yeah. They call it bush up here. Yeah. And then in front of me, I'm looking at a huge wheat field. Yeah. And uh, th- th- the thing about, th- to me, that spot is that there's not really concentrated food. Like no. where I was sitting at the no. dugout, yeah. I'm looking at a four-acre food plot. That's right. Deer coming in from all over to that four yep. acres. Yep. I'm looking at this huge section no, of land. They could go anywhere. They could they could feed anywhere. Anywhere. And uh, so this morning, Tom, I walked in there before daylight. You dropped me off, and I, I walked down the fence line. And first of all, I was so loud walking in there. I mean, just the just the snow crunching. You you just feel like you're just running everything off. You know. Just <laughs> And uh, walked all the way back in there, and then you climb up in the stand, and you're making all kind of racket. You know, I've got stuff hanging off yep. of me. I got yep. tripods and this yep. big old gun, and opening that 
open that door, and I mean, you just feel like when you get in there that you've spooked every critter on the planet off. Yep. I get in there, open the windows on that on that blind, and uh, I gotta admit, I don't know what I was thinking. I guess I was just trying to get comfortable, but I didn't even put a primer in my gun. <laughs> uh, he did. Didn't I, have it loaded. Uh, it was loaded, oh. but it was loaded. But I didn't even have a 409 primer in it. And I'm sitting in there and kind of getting my just bearings. And it gets daylight, and I look out there and I see a doe and two yearlings at about 200 yards that have been feeding this whole time. I mean, they certainly heard me walk in there, right? And didn't care, right? And so I'm watching them, and it's a doe and two yearlings, and it's getting close to the rut, November 7th. But she's clearly not in estrus because she's still got her got her fawns with her, and so I I mean I'm just kind of like ah well it's nice to have a few deer out in front of me yep decoys I don't know what I did after that but I just took my sweet time didn't even have the gun loaded didn't have anything <laughs> up and I turned back to my left just about the time you could see good enough to tell what a buck was and a buck had come a half a mile across that field and was standing 40 yards from that doe just staring her down. And I just see a buck, and I could tell it was a big-bodied deer, and I just go, holy smokes. And I knew from the direction it came and the way it was acting that it was a buck. It was still, it actually was still too dark to see its horns with the naked eye. I threw up my binos, and I see a good rack. I mean, and I could tell by the shape of that deer. Mm-hmm. Again, going back to... Mm-hmm. You know, I, I knew that it was long, it was thick, it was not a two-year-old deer. Right. I mean, it, I, it wasn't a world beater. It wasn't a, but, and finally, and this deer is just standing like a statue watching these does, and boy, I go to scrambling, getting that gun up. <laughs> I, I had to dig into the pouch to find my 409 primers. Oh, so you knew it didn't have a primer. Yeah. <laughs> Why didn't you have one? I just, I don't know. I guess I was just, it was just, like a holiday not hanging in a tree, taking the wind in the face, being in that box. I, mean, I guess I, I went just, through everything religious and my, uh, you know, held it outside, had my primer in it, had everything set up. And he's just, I guess I just thought I was on vacation yeah, when I was sitting in that box. Didn't even stand. have a primer in it. I was just like, yeah, I was just kicked back. Yeah. Anyway, I go to scrambling around, find the primer, get it put in. Get everything up, and it probably takes two minutes, you know. And uh, and look at this deer, and you know we're getting into the latter half of the hunt, and you, I knew your tag was filled, and so I was like, man, that's a nice deer. It was an eight point, but he, but he was narrow. He was not wide. He didn't even go past his ears, but he had mass, mm-hmm. you know. And he didn't have real long tines. I knew it would have just been kind of an average deer, but a mature deer. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was one of those that you're like, doggone, do I take that deer? Do I not? It's a long drive back to Arkansas with a tag in your pocket. And uh, I actually drew down on it and was going to shoot. I actually started to put pressure on the trigger, and he turned. And rather than going into the bush where the does, he turned and went back just the way he came, which was amazing to me that he did that. And when he turned to the left, he went in behind some brush that was about five feet, ten feet from my blind, and I knew I couldn't shoot through it. And so I watched the deer, and anyway, I'm kind of kicking myself, but also kind of glad that I didn't shoot it. And uh, I tell I I. Then you text me. I texted Tom, and I said, I just couldn't get a shot on a deer, but probably should have, but it wasn't a great deer. Anyway, long story short, while that buck is coming to those does, I look out on the 400 yards away, and there's another buck coming across the field. So it was a buck coming and going, and it was just a racked buck. I could see it 400 yards. It had a rack. I don't think it was big. I speed the story up. An hour later, I see three small bucks come out of the the cut line, mm-hmm. and it was a spike, a kind of a funky horn deer that he he had just like a unicorn horn and a regular side, hmm. but he was a two year old deer, thin horned, and then that nice two year old ten point that I that I described earlier that you know was probably mm-hmm. one hundred and fifteen inch ten point that 
could have fooled somebody. And those three bucks came out of the came out in the scenario two hundred yards and walked within five feet of the blind. They just walked right past me. They sparred a little bit out there in the sunlight. Yeah. It was beautiful. Well, because I'm not hanging in a tree, taking the wind in the face, I I was just comfortable in that blind. So comfortable. You, we, I, I said, let's. I'll hunt till ten. Well, when it got about nine thirty, I said, I feel good. I've seen five bucks, and I, I think I said I'd hunt till noon. Yep. Didn't I say that? That's what you said. I said oh, I'm just going to sit in here till noon, and then we were going to go eat lunch quick and go to another spot. Mm-hmm. Well, um, about ten forty-five, I believe it was the same doe and two yearlings that I saw at daylight popped out again, and and. They just popped out in the same place they went in, doe and two yearlings, which in the rut, that doesn't mean much because it means it's a doe that's not been chased. They popped out and never even looked behind them, Tom. You know how if a doe's being followed by a buck, they step out on the edge of a field, boy, their ears are turning, sure. they're looking behind them, sure. they're nervous. Yep. This doe didn't have a care in the world. The fawns didn't have a care in the world. So I was hardly even paying attention to them. It was just nice to look out and see some deer. And, uh, but I went ahead and readjusted my gun cause my gun was pointing down the Sendero cause that's where I figured I'd see deer. And it's a pretty big chore to get that big muzzleloader out and turned around. And so it took me a few minutes and I got the gun pointed out this way. So it's pointed to your left. It's pointed out into the wheat field to my left. You bet. Oh, it was pointed this way. So all these deer came out to your in, left? In the wheat field where the deer was. Yep. No, well, ha- the bucks came out from the Sendero. Oh, I'm from calling the... it a Sendero. It's not a Sendero. So all the bucks came from the wood pile? Yeah. No, the woods. The woods, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm looking out in this wheat field at these does, and uh, I, I was distracted. Sun was shining, feeling good, and I just look up after a minute or two of not even looking and look and my goodness the sight that every white-tailed deer hunter dreams of seeing in canada no doubt 40 yards past the doe just outsteps a giant buck i mean what to me was a giant buck Mm -hmm. he was twice as big as that doe looked to be i mean 100 pounds bigger than the doe I mean, out of my peripheral vision, I never even really made contact with the eye contact with the buck before I was grabbing the gun, getting ready. I mean, it was just a no-brainer. Yeah, no, yeah. Tall tines, wide, heavy, big deer. And that, that doe never even gave any indication that she even cared he was there, which mm-hmm. was odd to me. Usually they, you yeah. know, they yeah. would have looked and... Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just like, holy cow. Uh, look, I mean, it's just a picturesque, it's why you come to Canada, giant deer. Anyway, he's at, I know the does are at 200 yards, so I know he's about 230. I know this gun I'm using is Steve Schultz gun, my father-in-law's muzzleloader, custom-built muzzleloader. I knew it was zeroed at 200. So, you know, I just knew I needed to just oh, put right, it. Right on. I just put it, put it on the front shoulder, and I wasted no time. Because you told me, Tom, you said if you got time to count points, you should have been shooting. Yep. You like to pet them. That's yep. what Tom says. He says, I, I like to pet them, and then we can look at the horns. Yep. And I just put it on the front shoulder. It's quartering to me just a little bit. Boom. Gun went off. We've had some trouble with primers. <laughs> Every hunt I've been up here, somebody with me's had trouble with muzzleloaders going off in this cold weather. Yep. So I was pleased when the gun fired. And, uh, the buck ran, which I was a little bit surprised at, because I I thought I thought he might drop where I put it. I, I may have been two inches to the right of where I was really wanting to hit him, hit him just a little, not back. I mean, it hit him right behind the shoulder. But he took a big spin out into the field with his legs. He was doing the chicken leg deal, and down, 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 and bam, hit the ground. Within seconds, I was calling you, Tom. Yep. I really was. <laughs> and uh, you, it went to voicemail at first. Anyway, we go 
Chris, Tom goes and picks Chris up, who's at the bunkhouse. And that's part of what's so fun about this hunt is it's, you know, it's deer camp. You got your buddies here, and uh, Chris was waiting at the house. He came. Anyway, beautiful 10-point. We scored the deer today. I scored it at 159, and, uh, well, we did it in decimals. So 159.9, we're calling it 160 inches. <laughs> All right, so 160 inch on the on the money. Ten point had one of the longest time was twelve inches long. It was only seventeen inches wide, twenty one and a half inch main beams. But on uh, the G threes and G fours on one side were both over ten inches or ten inches. Had a kicker coming off one of the points. I mean, just a beautiful buck. Weighed two hundred thirty pounds. Yep, which was the smallest of the deer that I've killed here. Exactly. Body size. The buck last year scored what. Weighed 248 pounds, yep. uh, but had a, a rack that would would not have scored near what this but, one scored. But it was just a more, a more mature buck. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. This one had great potential when you think of it because it was a younger buck, but the potential was there. When you're starting 10 and 12-inch tines, it had all the potential to be a, you know, a buckhead. Yeah. Next year it would have been. Yeah. It was that close. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it capped off an incredible four or five days of hunting here. It really did. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, I was not expecting to bring home a 160-inch deer at all. What do you think of it, Chris? Uh, it's amazing. I mean, it was. we've seen some really big deer. Yeah. And that deer is, I mean, it's, I think that's the biggest deer we've seen. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. Think so. I yeah. think so. Yeah. And that I didn't realize too that that I mean until we saw I mean that picture didn't do it justice the no, trail it didn't. picture yeah no no it that, didn't no yeah we had one trail camera picture we didn't realize it till after we killed it but Tom had you set up a camera for one day in a food uh, plot yeah and we got eight pit, a picture of eight bucks yeah and uh, as far as I'm concerned out of those eight three to four of them are good ones yeah you know this kind of quality and better yeah yeah. Well, yeah. Well, we'll uh, we'll have another conversation with between Chris and I about his hunt, um, uh, and and just kind of our our synopsis of the week. But uh, no, any closing comments or thoughts, Tom? Hmm. What any uh, what's your uh, what's Tom? Tom is a master at efficiency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really, any, anything he does is going to be efficient. So I, I want to like ask him for like a, a tip about something. But I uh, we got the we got the deer the, the cooking tip the the skull cleaning tip. Uh, we got we just got a great lesson in the butchering butchering deer out yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, but uh, no, can you think of anything, Chris? Well, I mean, it, it was just interesting as we're looking for a deer. I mean, it's just you'd think you were going down a trail that was a good trail, and you could already see, you know, Tom had walked down the trail. I mean, I think <laughs> oh, part of we that's... we were looking yeah, for your deer. Yeah, I think part of it's he's been here, you know, so long, but also, too, he's just very efficient at what he does. He doesn't mess around. It's just let's get it done, but at the same time, very accommodating. So, yeah. It's, yeah. Um, yeah, it's like you said. I mean, you show up at your bunkhouse and... You know, your your fridge has stuff in it, and, you know, your place is warm and the light's on. We got in at what? 4 a.m. 4 a.m. What did I tell you? I told you there'll be a pound of bacon, a dozen eggs, loaf of bread, uh, orange juice, half a gallon of milk, cream, coffee. This is exactly there. I, Deb probably does that. That's her department. Deb does that. Yeah, I just we got to give a lot of we got to give credit. Yeah, I just work here. here. You just work here. Yeah, well, the light was on and it, and it was hot. It was warm and yeah. yeah, 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 And it was. Is that building over there where the the little benches? Is that another bunkhouse? Yeah, I'll have to show it to you. It's really nice inside. It? Oh, it's nice. Yeah, yeah, I've never seen that. We have people that come up here, and they request to stay there. Oh, really? Out in the little the little one out there. I hadn't oh. seen that one. We we maybe we'll have to stay there next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's just uh, I'll show it to you tomorrow morning or something. I'll slip over or something, and if yeah. you're you know we'll have a look at it. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tom, and uh, 
Yeah, we'll we'll uh, give some details later about how people can contact you and stuff. Mm-hmm. That's great. But, uh, we appreciate. Yeah, that. what are your closing closing comments? What just about the week or about about hunting up here yeah. or? We had a good week here. I think it was. This is a great week to hunt, guys. Uh, it's just pre rut. Uh, I think it goes right through to November 19th. I liked hunting as late as November 19th when all the girls are bred and uh, you got these bucks just running all over looking for them last ones. So it's really good hunting. You can hunt muzzleloader season up here and into rifle season. And, you know, we've done archery season too, and we've shot very good bucks in archery season. Uh, you know, you're just in an area where there's some good quality stuff, and I think you have a real honest opportunity to get something you know i think um, yeah and it just yeah you know that's about it i can't say yeah, too much come more. try it come try it yeah well all right keep the wild places wild because that's where the big canadian bucks live <laughs> <laughs> all right thank you tom yeah